This is Mackenzie Lambert, your host for Mac and the Movies, where we look at everything from art house to grindhouse, mainstream to obscure, the forgotten, and the unforgettable. On this episode, we are going to take a look at films featuring the superheroes of Marvel Comics long before the decade stream of MCU films, a look back at simpler times. The films on the docket today are The Amazing Spider-Man from 1977, Doctor Strange from 1978, Captain America from 1979, the 1994 Fantastic Four film from Roger Corman, and Punisher Warzone from 2008. This should be a good one. After the Marvel films, I have a special review for the upcoming virtual release, Body Swap, from director Timothy Morton and starring Ella Jordan and Jim Custies. There will also be a special giveaway for the latest entry in the Rogue Warfare series, Death of a Nation, starring Will Young Lee and Stephen Lang, courtesy of the kind folks at Paramount Pictures. Spoilers ahead, now let's dive into the movies. We got movies! rob a bank while in a state of hypnosis. In the getaway, their car crashes. Two other men steal the money from the doctor and the lawyer and take pins off of them as they get away. New photographer Peter Parker is begging editor J. Jonah Jameson for work when a news report comes in. 
The mayor announces that he was warned 10 random citizens of New York will commit suicide unless a ransom of $50 million is paid. Later, Peter is working in a radiation lab with his classmate David. Unbeknownst to them, a spider made its way through the radiation chamber. When Peter is about to leave, he's bitten by the spider. As Peter is leaving, an armored car is being robbed. The thief gets away and drives into a lot where Peter is. The car nearly runs into Peter, who escapes by leaping out of danger and clings to a wall. The car crashes into the wall below him. Same as the previous robbery, two men steal the money and pins off the unconscious man, but with Peter as an unknown witness. Soon, Peter realizes he now has special powers and intends to use them for good, starting with a mugger holding up an old lady. When arrested, the mugger tries to tell the officer about a man who climbs walls, with other witnesses supporting the mugger's story. The Amazing Spider-Man premiered on September 14, 1977, and was a ratings hit, being the most successful made-for-TV movie for the year for CBS. The film was given sporadic theatrical releases, where it earned $9 million. It is absolutely dated, but in a very charming way. The effects of the wall crawling, the spider sense, and the web shooting actually make the film more enjoyable. We find out the villain behind the ransom is a guru by the name of Edward Byron. Spider-Man must stop him before it's too late. It's a disappointment to have such a generic bad guy, considering Spider-Man has one of the best rogues galleries of any superhero. Talk about a missed opportunity to bring in a villain like Mysterio, fishbowl helmet and all. I would love to have seen a 70s live-action take on the character, and he makes sense since hypnosis is one of his abilities. E.W. Swackhammer, if that's his real name, directed the made-for-TV movie. His other credits include Bewitched, Jake and the Fat Man, and Law & Order. Alvin Boritz of Kojak and Ironside wrote the script. Johnny Spence composed the music. Nicholas Hammond was way too old to be Peter Parker. Uh, There are no quips or sarcasm. Uh, That was a hallmark of the character. Hammond may be best known for The Sound of Music and the 1963 version of The Lord of the Flies. David White plays the cantankerous J. Jonah Jameson. White does a fine job as the editor of the Daily Bugle and set the stage for the take on the character by J.K. Simmons. White would also appear in the Incredible Hulk TV show, although not as Jameson. The great Michael Pataki plays Captain Barbera, stealing the scenes. Pataki as Barbera takes a few nuances from Jameson, the cigar chomping, the voice. Barry, you ratted me out! Hello? (laughs) Hello. The Amazing Spider-Man offered a bare minimum experience for the web-slinger. It's a product of its time and should be enjoyed as such.
mysterious entity summons the exiled Morgan Le Fay. The entity wants her to kill Lindemer, the current Sorcerer Supreme. Morgan takes over the body of a young student, Clea, and uses her in an attempt on the life of Lindemer. When Clea regains her senses, she has an emotional mental breakdown. Fortunately, Lindemer survives the attack. Clea becomes hysterical from the possession by Morgan. She checks herself into a hospital. She goes under the care of Dr. Stephen Strange. Strange also meets Lindmer, who informs him of the danger Clea is in. Lindmer takes Strange under his wing with the help of Wong and prepares him for his confrontation with Morgan Le Fay and the mysterious entity. The following year after the live-action Spider-Man film with Nicholas Hammond, TV audiences were introduced to the Master of Magic from Marvel Comics, Doctor Strange. The film premiered on September 6, 1978. Sadly, Strange was not picked up for a series like his TV Marvel counterparts, Spider-Man and the Incredible Hulk. The film also takes its time and liberties with the character development and origins. You get some hints of mysticism, but an hour in, you finally get some Kubrickian psychedelia as Doctor Strange enters the astral plane. Doctor Strange purists might raise eyebrows at the character being a psychiatric medical specialist, as opposed to a neurosurgeon who loses his ability to use his hands. The mysterious entity at the start of the film could have been a great opportunity to introduce Dormammu, but they're just the generic entity out to get the Sorcerer Supreme. I will give credit to the film using an actual nemesis to Doctor Strange. Unlike Spider-Man or some of the other entries in the Marvel television universe, the film doesn't resort to old rich white guy as the main antagonist. Morgan Le Fay was a leader of a cult and had her own mystical powers, making a fine match for Strange. Funny enough, in the comics, she had a lover by the name of Mordred, that name would later be used for the Charles Band film, Dr. Mordred, Master of the Unknown. That film was originally meant to be a Doctor Strange movie, but the option to make the film using the license expired. Instead of scrapping the project, the elements were changed enough so that Marvel couldn't sue. Never underestimate the ingenuity of Charles Band. Philip DeGure only made one feature film as a director. Doctor Strange is that one film. To his credit, he did his damned best. He was mostly a writer with credits for The Bionic Woman, Magnum P.I., and Jag. Composer Paul Chahara provides a wide range of sound in the music score. He does some avant-garde, a psychedelic synth, early prog, and great use of the sitar. He nails the needed tone for the film. Jahara made his composing debut with the Roger Corman classic, Death Race 2000. He continued to compose music for film and television up to 2016. He is currently a professor of music at New York University. Peter Hooten has the title role of Doctor Strange. While not the playboy Strange was presented as in the comics and the Benedict Cumberbatch film, he's still a believable ladies' man. Hooten was one of the original Inglorious Bastards, along with Bo Svensson and Fred the Hammer Williamson. Jessica Walker plays the seductive Morgan Le Fay and does justice for the character. She shows more menace than many of the male villains in the CBS-produced Marvel TV films. Walker may be best known as the matriarch of the Bluth family in Arrested Development. In supporting roles, you have John Mills as Lindmer, 
Anne-Marie Martin in the role of Clea, and Clyde Kusatsu as Wong. While it doesn't go far enough into the weirdness of Doctor Strange, it was nice for CBS to give one of Marvel's lesser-known characters a chance in the spotlight. While not the most loyal adaptation of the character, it makes for decent viewing. Steve Rogers is a former Marine who has taken up a nomadic lifestyle. He roams along the West Coast, enjoying life and rolling with the punches. Rogers is lured into a trap after assailants leave an oil slick out on a grapevine hill. He just barely survives. Steve meets with a friend and colleague of his father, Dr. Mills. Mills informs Steve of the FLAG project. FLAG meaning Full Latent Ability Gain. In the many experiments, cell rejection has been cited as the reason for the failure of the experiments. Mills has a theory that Steve may be the key. Steve's father used his own genetic code for the serum. Mills thinks Steve's DNA connection to his father may be what's needed for the flag serum to work. Steve passes on the opportunity to meet up with an associate who sounded like he was in danger. Steve arrives at the house of Jeff, but it seems no one's home. Steve finds Jeff on the floor, mortally wounded. Jeff whispers in Steve's ear. He asks him to protect Catherine. Steve goes to call the paramedics, but the assassin sneaks out with a camera and Jeff's calendar. Jeff was in on a conspiracy to build and detonate a neutron bomb, but Jeff backed out and was killed for it. He was in possession of incriminating film that could implicate others. Now, the people who went after Jeff are now after Steve. After a second assassination attempt, Steve is barely alive. Mills has no choice but to give Steve the flag serum. With enhanced abilities, Steve takes on the identity of Captain America. If you thought Doctor Strange went off base in relation to the source material, boy did CBS go off the rails with Captain America. Instead of a young skinny teen with a soldier's heart, we have a buff, pacifistic free spirit not wanting to get involved in any conflict. We're never in the 1940s, pre-U.S. involvement in the Second World War. Clearly on a budget, so any period sequences were out of the question. This is such a radical departure that it may be tough to convince longtime Cap fans or MCU fans to give this film a chance. Again, we have a generic white rich guy as the villain, not only in this film, but in the follow-up film of Captain America, Death Too Soon. In that film, you had Christopher Lee as the main baddie. 
Christopher Lee, one of the icons of British cinema, and you don't cast him as an actual Cap villain. I mean, Baron Von Strucker, Baron Zemo, Red Skull. Imagine Christopher Lee as the Red Skull. This aspect is what takes me out of these CBS TV movies. Marvel has some great bad guys, and CBS doesn't take advantage of that. Rod Holcomb handles the directorial duties. He makes the best of a film that does away with the source material. Before this film, Holcomb helmed a few episodes of The Six Million Dollar Man. He'd go on to work on Battlestar Galactica, Greatest American Hero, and ER. We already talked about Red Brown in the Bruno Mattai episode. Brown was a cult cinema legend thanks to roles in Your Hunter from the Future, Strike Commando, and Robo War. Brown would be perfect as post-Super Soldier Serum Steve Rogers, only if the production stuck with the source material. I'm just not used to seeing hyper-masculine Red Brown as a laid-back, mellow hero. Len Berman filled in the supporting role of Dr. Simon Mills. Berman would return in the follow-up film for Captain America. Berman frequently appeared in made-for-TV Shakespeare adaptations, uh, other credits of note include Airwolf and the Wilder prior classic Silver Streak. Red Brown Captain America is a tough sell for fans of any degree of the character. It may have the cheesy appeal of the 1990 Captain America film, but fans want some respect for the source material. The film doesn't provide that. If you can appreciate Red Brown and the B-movie aura he gave off, then maybe this one's for you. Richards and Victor Von Doom are friends who are interested in engaging in an experiment involving a passing comment. Unfortunately, the experiment goes wrong and Victor is badly scarred. We're also introduced to Susan and Johnny Storm and Ben Grimm. Flash forward to the 1990s. Reed, Susan, Johnny, and Ben are going up in a spaceship to conduct an experiment with the same comet Reed and Victor tried to engage with during college. The group is hit with cosmic rays after the diamond meant to absorb the rays was sabotaged, replaced with a fake. The ship crash lands, and the four soon realize they have been given special abilities. Reed can stretch his body, Johnny can create flames, Susan can turn invisible, and Ben has transformed into a rock beast. Shortly after, henchmen of Victor Von Doom try to hold them captive, but they escape. We find out that it was a villain by the name of the jeweler who stole the diamond, intending to offer it as a wedding gift to a blind girl, Alicia Masters. Yet, Doom has his own plan for the diamond. 
despite the low budget, the 1994 Fantastic Four film still manages to be the best one. Far better than the 2005 film and its 2007 sequel. And we're not going to even address that trash heap that came out a couple of years ago. Roger Corman produced the film on behalf of German company Constantine Films, as well as using his own distributor, New Horizon Pictures. The cheap-looking effects add a charm to the film compared to the CGI-polluted films years later. The simple editing tricks for Invisible Woman, the camera effects for Reed, the early CGI for The Human Torch, the rubber suit used for The Thing, still implemented the design by Jack Kirby. Constantine Films approached Stan Lee about producing a film back in 1983. The rights were finally available in 1986, with the deadline being December 31st, 1992, to start production. When the request for an extension was declined, production began in September of 1992. In a 2002 interview, Avi Arad, a producer for Marvel, recalled that he was approached by a fan in 1993 while visiting Puerto Rico about the then-upcoming Fantastic Four film. Arad had no awareness of the film and looked into it. Fearing what damage a low-budget film would do to the brand, Arad purchased all prints of the film and had them destroyed. Thankfully, some prints survived, and the film is available to see for free on YouTube. There is a great deal of fan service in this film. The delivery man's hat has the wings of Thor's helmet. There is a tease for the idea of one person having all four of the group's powers. Hinting at Super Scroll. you have the fantastic car. Jeweler was meant to be, I guess, a surrogate for Mole Man, but he closer resembles the Tinkerer. Director Ole Sassoon does his best with the material and limited budget. Sassoon would go on to direct episodes of Xena, Warrior Princess, and Martial Law. Alex Hyde-White played Reed, Mr. Fantastic Richards. He had a small part in another Marvel project, the second made-for-TV movie with Red Brown as Captain America. He also played the young Henry Jones in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Rebecca Staub was mostly a TV actress, appearing on Home Improvement, The Wonder Years, and Columbo. She does her best with Susan Richards. Jay Underwood may be the most recognizable member of the cast. I personally remember him from the Not Quite Human series. Michael Bailey Smith and Carl Cierfalio share duties as Ben Grimm, alias The Thing. Smith handled the Ben Grimm scenes, while Cierfalio was under the Thing suit. Joseph Culp, Ian Trigger, and Kat Green round out the supporting cast. There's no reason not to give this film a look. I'm sure Marvel wish you didn't, but this film was way better than the mid-2000 films produced by Fox. There's a welcomed whimsy to this film that is hard to not enjoy. Still the best film version of this Marvel brand at the time when they experienced more misses than hits. This isn't like any procedure that we've ever done before. Well, that's why I'm here, Doc. Your facial muscles, tendons, bone structure, everything. It was destroyed. Evil has many faces. You look fantastic, brother. Yes. Darkness has many allies. This deal is going down tonight. Raise your army! is them all. 
is just the beginning. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Let's play a game. Gotta be with you, Frank. Sometimes I'd like to get my hands on God. You're fighting a war. The court trial of Don Caesar was dismissed after the death of a pivotal witness at the hands of Billy the Butte Rusati. They celebrated the Don's mansion until the arrival of Frank Castle, alias the Punisher. Castle proceeds to wipe out everyone in the mansion while Rusati and his men escape the massacre. Castle follows them back to a glass processing factory. He sneaks in but is surprised by one of Rusati's men. Castle engages in a quick gun battle, leaving Rosati in a glass crusher. Rosati survives, but has permanent facial damage. Castle soon finds out that the one guy he shot was actually an undercover cop. Castle goes to the cop's widow, suffering from a crisis of conscience for killing an innocent man. She refuses his charity. The situation gets worse when Rosati, now known as Jigsaw, targets the family of the cop and he brings in an army of local gangs. Punisher Warzone had the misfortune of being released in December, a time often reserved for Oscar bait films, and in a year filled with other noted comic book movies, Iron Man, The Dark Knight, and the second Hellboy movie. At the time of 2009, four comic book movies in one year was considered too much. (laughs) Oh, 2009. Punisher Warzone was the third attempt to bring the character to the screen after the 1989 film with Dolph Lundgren and the 2004 film with Thomas Jane. Compared to the other films, Warzone was more faithful to the simplistic nature of the character, which was the case with the 1989 film, but Castle was more creative in Warzone. The 2004 film had the convoluted plot of Castle turning the main baddie against one of his own men and wife. Warzone feels like a real Punisher film. And there are just so many great set pieces. The opening gunfight with the Punisher hanging uh, hanging from a chandelier. The rocket blowing up one of the parkour guys. uh, Dropping a guy off the roof and having him land on a sharp gate. uh, The fat pot smoker in the elevator. Using the grenade launcher to wipe out a room full of bad guys. They made Castle essentially Jason Voorhees. Instead of killing dumb teenagers, he kills members of organized crime. Originally, there was a Punisher sequel to the Thomas Jane film in the work, uh, said to be produced in Louisiana. Uh, The production in Louisiana was canceled after Hurricane Katrina. Thomas Jane was on board, but left after being tired of waiting for production to begin. Kurt Sutter, a writer of the TV series The Shield, wrote a draft of the script, but was scrapped when Lexi Alexander took over directorial duties. Her full-length film, Green Street Hooligans, garnered her further attention before making Punisher Warzone. She even went as far as reaching out to the online Punisher fanbase for advice and wanted to know their ideas for a Punisher film. After the film flopped, she distanced herself from it until she met more of the fanbase who loved the film, and she would be happy with the film she made. I recommend checking out her appearance along with Punisher Warzone fan Patton Oswald on the podcast, How Did This Get Made?, 
After working on the faith-based film Lifted, she would work regularly on television. Ray Stevenson is the perfect Punisher actor, in my opinion. Minimal dialogue, deadpan facial expressions. He lets his actions speak for him. Stevenson would go on to be a frequent player in the MCU as Volstagg in the Thor films. He was a regular on Rome and Dexter. He would reprise the role of the Punisher for the kids series, The Superhero Squad Show. We're nothing but white blood cells. Hunting the infection called crime. A sickness that sneaks in through the cracks. The way that Brussels sprouts sneak onto a plate of delicious macaroni and cheese. Sure, the city looks safe. Just push the Brussels sprouts to one side, right? Raw, no matter where you put them, their vile vegetable juices corrupt the whole plate. Oh. I'm out here to keep those stinking sprouts off the mac and cheese. Keep them from leaving the store in the first place. Dominic West would handle the role of Billy Rosati, later Jigsaw. Many would pass off his performance as Jigsaw as just a ripoff of Heath Ledger's Joker, Yet, Rosani was modeling his turn more after the gangster theatrics of James Cagney. West was a mainstay on the hit show The Wire. Doug Hutchinson hams it up as the psycho-cannibalistic brother of Rosati, Looney Ben Jim. His character proved divisive. People either liked him or hated him. I thought hating him was a good thing, which made his fight with the Punisher all the more satisfying. Hutchinson appeared in a few high-profile films like The Green Mile, A Time to Kill, and Con Air. The supporting cast is rounded out with Colin Salmon, Wayne Knight, Dash Mihawk, and Julie Benz. Punisher Warzone is my favorite Punisher film and one of my all-time favorite comic book movies. I had the pleasure of seeing this in theaters and remains one of the few enjoyable experiences I had in that environment. A strong cast, a director respectful of the source material, and that's all you need to appreciate this proper take on one of Marvel's most recognizable characters. This is CJ. She's ambitious. And I know I couldn't have a better person to help me negotiate with Hitchero and company other than you. Me? I, I would love to, sir. This is Casey. He is not. I'd have to be an idiot to mess this up. She's stressed out. You took my dog. No, it's not our dog. It's my dog. He doesn't have a care in the world. Got a job interview today. How do I look? <sighs> you look like a divorced alcoholic. Is this the applicant? I believe it is. Until a mishap changed their world forever. How did this happen? Pump the brakes, lady. I don't swap bodies every day. Well, I'm a career-minded woman, and I have a lot going on right now. I can't go to work like this. Now they must walk in the other person's shoes. I'll be you, and you be me, and that's it. They must pretend to be each other. This guy's face is less sensitive than my legs. In the end, they'll realize the grass isn't always greener on the other side. This is a nightmare. Ice Beer Milk presents... Ella Jordan, Jimmy Custis, Gunnar Willis, Katie Geralt, and Erica Manny in a film directed by Tim Morton. Body Swap. Anything new? I found an M&M under your boob. Oh, I wondered where that went. Body Swap concerns two different individuals who switch bodies and have to experience the other person's life. 
Casey is a slacker who does job interviews so as to keep receiving unemployment checks. CJ is a determined go-getter at her office. Casey puts in an application that leads to an interview with CJ. During the interview, CJ attempts to shred Casey's questionable resume but spills water in it. Shocking both of them, thus leading to them switching bodies. Now, each have their own trials and tribulations in the other's body relationships with co-workers and significant others, an upcoming merger that could be lucrative for CJ's company and herself. The film does a great job of establishing stakes for both CJ and Casey that allow for them to mature as adults. Romantic comedies are as far away from my wheelhouse as movie genres get for me. I'm mostly an exploitation cult cinema person who occasionally dabbles with mainstream fare. However, I will indulge with something warm and sentimental once in a while. Uh, The Holiday from 2006 immediately comes to mind. Uh, There's Groundhog Day and The Wedding Singer. So giving this type of film a watch is not as out of the ordinary as it would seem. Uh, The biggest strength the film has going for it is the ability to pull out absurdity from the mundane. The Toy Story 23 trailer with the foam Hulk fist, seeing CJ and Casey's body wearing yoga pants... Uh, the recurring Ninja Turtle references, lines out of nowhere that got a howl of laughter from me. You're the jerk. Wendy hates me now. I'm stuck in this body because of you. You don't want me getting with other girls? Fine. I'm going to get with so many dudes, your vagina's going to fall off. The tempers were flared a little bit. Yeah, you had like a temper tantrum. What's that booty do? Poop. The sight of the rock band guitar controller was a point-blank shot of nostalgia. Oh, God, the money I dropped on DLC for that series. I I could probably pay off all my school loans with how much I dropped. Anyway, uh, back back on topic. Basic, straightforward setups that yielded much laughter from me. The docudrama approach helps separate this film from the likes of Freaky Friday or Big or... Dear God for me even bringing up this film, but the hot chick. We see the characters reflect on the situation, how they grow from it. Uh, The optimism that springs from it is a much welcomed element. One issue I have with the film is that it's too heavy on the pop culture references. Some of them will hit their mark, others will fly over the head of the audience. Uh, The other issue is a matter of preference. After seeing this film, I'm more open to suggestion regarding the romantic comedy genre, yet there are those who avoid the genre like the plague. If there was a movie to test your personal waters as to whether this is a genre you can get into, then Body Swap may be the movie for you to experiment with. Director Timothy Morton was not on my radar as a filmmaker, but this film opened my eyes. He's only got a couple of other films and is currently filming a documentary on a gathering of musical souls to participate in shape note singing. Not sure what that means, but then again, isn't that the job of the documentary? Ella Jordan and Jimmy Costez do a great job of impersonating each other. They really dig into each other's personality. Uh, Jordan seemed to be channeling Aubrey Plaza. Uh, Costez also wrote the film, uh, really put himself out there as CJ. Think Face Off meets Love, actually. Also, kudos to Costez for the visible weight loss uh, compared to the start of the film. 
The supporting roles feature some of the best bit performers I've seen in recent film. Gunnar Willis is hilarious as Casey's equally slacker roommate Roy. Joseph Tino as the boss is what I would imagine a real-life Mr. Burns to look like, but he plays up the character with a Woody Allen neurotic behavior. Katie Geralt, Erica Manny, and Ray Hunt make the most of their secondary screen time. Overall, Body Swap was a surprisingly enjoyable film that presents a well-known premise, but plays out in a manner that is outside of the genre box. You have two leads in Jordan and Costez, who are both charming and believable. Uh, The film will be available on Friday, October 2nd in theaters and on virtual cinema. Uh, Go visit www.bodyswapmovie.com. I'll have the link in the description. Streaming now on Redbox On Demand, Will Young Lee and Stephen Lang return for the final chapter in an action-packed trilogy, Rogue Warfare, Death of a Nation. When a deadly bomb is set to detonate in 36 hours, the team must race against time to disarm it and defeat their enemy. Outnumbered and overmatched, each soldier must find their inner strength and skill to overcome insurmountable odds. Stream Rogue Warfare, Death of a Nation, Instantly on your smart TV or favorite device with the Redbox app today. Rated R from Paramount Pictures. I have five digital codes to give away. I will pick five at random across my three social media pages and will notify the winners via direct messaging on the respective social media platform. Be sure to follow me on those social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, so that I can contact you. Otherwise, I have to pick someone else as a winner. My social media will be linked in the description box. I will announce the winners and notify them on Wednesday, October 7th at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Be sure to use the hashtag Rogue Warfare and Rogue Warfare Death of a Nation. Using those hashtags on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Also, feel free to tell me your favorite Stephen Lang performance, uh, just to add a little more pizzazz to your entries. Good luck, everybody. And that wraps up this episode of Mac and the Movies. Thanks for listening. A quick shout out to the Fun with Friends podcast for spotlighting the show for International Podcast Day. Uh, Give it a listen. Uh, There will be a link in the description. And uh, wow, a lot of... A lot going on this week, which uh, has helped me take my mind off of a bad start to the week, and I'm very grateful for it. Next time on Megan the Movies, we'll be taking a look at select films from a classic maverick of filmmaking, Ted V. Mickles, and that wonderful mustache of his. Uh, the films we'll be looking at are 1968's Grilled in Gold Boots, 1971's The Corpse Grinders, 1972's Blood Orgy of the She-Devils, 1973's Doll Squad, and 2000's Corpse Grinders 2, Grade A Exploitation. That episode will drop on Wednesday, October 14th. If you enjoyed this content and would like to see the program grow, feel free to offer a one-time donation via PayPal, Venmo, or Cash App. For $1.99 a month, you can join my Subscribestar to help guide the creative direction of the show. As mentioned previously, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I have my BitChute channel. All of that in the description box below. Until next time, this is Mackenzie Lambert for Mac and the Movies. Take care and stay safe out there.